Welcome to episode 11 of Innovation Activists Designing Healthcare's Future. This is Reed Omri. I'm your host today, and our special guest is Dr. Andre Churchwell. Dr. Churchwell is the Chief Diversity Officer for Vanderbilt University Medical Center and also serves as Senior Associate Dean for Diversity Affairs at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. I have no other way to describe Dr. Churchwell short of profound polymath. Andre, you have so many different hats that you wear. You are an engineer, a scientist, an innovator, an artist. You are a mentor. You are an activist. You do it all. Can, can you, how, do, how do, do, a little this singing, all, do a little singing on the side, too. Yeah, do a little singing <laughs> on the side. So, so how did this all start as a kid? How, how did you get so engrossed in so many different activities? You know, Reed, it's one of these things that's hard to actually put a date or time on it. But when I have had to think about this, it starts probably age five or six or thereabouts. My dad, Robert Churchwell, was a real brilliant man. He was a great writer. But what he never really fully studied or developed was he had great artistic skill too. And he made animal models out of wood, burned wood pieces. He could make pictures and he could draw. So here I am at a kid age five and he's showing me these woodcuts of a lion or a bear he had made. And then he starts drawing Popeye, the sailor man. Now I'm of the vintage where Popeye was the cartoon of the day. And spinach and, was healthy. And spinach was healthy. Yes, I hated okay. spinach then. Okay. I love spinach okay. now, thank okay. goodness. But I saw that and it just kind of clicked in my head. Let me see if I can do that. So my brother and I, he was about a year older, we started getting dad's paper. He would type his stories on with his pencils and start drawing. And all of a sudden it became apparent to me that I, after practicing, could actually start doing some of the drawings that were similar to his drawings, and it just became a real passion. So all this kind of spilled out of initially comic books, and then my parents started bringing home those big Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci coffee table books that had all the drawings from the all the Leonardo sketches, and so I started learning how to do anatomy from that, and it just kind of took off from there. I think as I've gotten older, I've become interested in this whole right-left brain thing. As you, I, you and I both know, we talk about it. And as a kid, I was an introvert and I stuttered terribly. Isn't that amazing? I was this profound introvert. I thought I would never get out of the house, never get, get out in front of people and talk and do anything. And as I've gotten older and with my dad's help, I've kind of overcome a lot of this stuff. I began getting friends who were experts in the field of learning disorders and people with left-handedness because I'm a left-handed guy. And it turns out a friend of mine is an expert in this at Emory and his whole area of study is left-handed folks and the things that are associated with those that have the real juice. We know about the presidents and how many gifted people like Leonardo, but it turns out from this guy's research, it's the left-handed guys that have maybe autism or stuttering or some learning disorder that maybe have the real juice. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily me, but it explains a little bit of my kind of natural insanity. Did art then, being able to do this yourself and do it alone, do you think that helped catapult you? Yeah, I think so. You know, when I talk to mothers, kids that have maybe stuttering, and I do that, I do uh, meet people about this, I said, hey, let them have their time alone. Because to be honest with you, if I had not spent all that time studying how to draw and developing more of a three-dimensional way of looking at the world through drawing and just spending a lot of time down in the basement by myself doing this stuff, I wouldn't be where I am now. There's no question about it. That individual time, and, and to some extent, some of my 
insanity that I can operate on is the fact that even now in my role at Vanderbilt or whatever I'm doing, if I have a project, I'm able to kind of deeply go inward of and block the world out for maybe 30 minutes or an hour at a time and be very productive. And I think that can be taught and you can learn how to do that. A lot of us have trouble with that in terms of being able to get focused enough to be able to be productive for very short periods of time. So if you watch me during a meeting and I have my drawing book, I can finish a drawing that's almost complete and ready for uh, hanging on the wall. And so I think there are some skills that can be taught if you listen to your kid and pay attention to letting them have their time, not with these little tools in their hand, these gizmos at computers. I think the data is showing that may limit creativity. That may limit three-dimensional brain growth, but have them let them have their drawing pad and their pencils and the books around drawing and stuff. Often when we get together a, a group of adults in medicine who are traditionally left-brained and we ask them to draw something, there is something along the spectrum of fear to panic, uh, this anxiety that I don't know how to draw. Yet every five, six, seven-year-old, you put a sheet of paper, give them some crowns or markers, and they just go right at it. Where does this come from where we get afraid to draw or even worse, have this fixed mindset that I can't draw as an adult? Well, I think all of us who become professional, there's this whole idea of proficiency and expertism that kind of drives us to want to do one thing versus another. I can learn to play golf real well, but I can't learn to do X or Y or Z. Kids, their brains are not bound by those rules. And what we know, as you and I who study uh, as amateurs in the era of learning abilities, we know that even if you're not an expert artist, something happens if you put a kid with a piece of paper in their hand and what that does in terms of creating linkages and wires and, and synapses that, and circuit connections in the brain that adds to the level of creativity development. And there are med schools now, Yale and others, that are encouraging students in the year one and to start learning, quote unquote, how to draw. And, now, and they'll have to compete with the fact, well, I can't draw a stick man or I can't do that. But what your stick man does to your brain in terms of connecting things in your head to allow you to see things in a different way is phenomenal. And so there is something about whatever you draw, you draw, but it's doing something profound in terms of connecting right and left brain activities in ways that we're just starting to appreciate. How do you respond to some people who say, you know, I'm just not creative. I'm not one of those creative types. I'm a scientist. I'm not creative. I've just never been. Do you buy that? No, I don't. And, and we have models. We have examples through uh, the years. You have a Da Vinci who was a true ultimate polymath that mixed it all, writing, art, history. We have role models. I give a talk occasionally here on the campus and in other schools called Creativity Applied Physics. And I use role models or my models to explain how it can be done. And one of my models is Tom McMahon. And Tom had a PhD in aeronautical engineering from MIT and was designing introitic balloon pumps, but he told his thesis director that he would not finish the work if he didn't allow him to take this special creative writing course in the English department at Harvard. And they thought he was crazy, but the, they wanted him to keep working on this introitic balloon pump because he had some great ideas about that. So he took this highly competitive creative drawing class that you had to write something to get into, and, and that fueled his interest in writing 
thinking creatively. So he found his creative space at five o'clock in the morning in his study at home, and his wife knew not to bother him, and he would write novels, scientific novels based on real scientists, but putting them in weird situations in his very unusual world of, of scientific fiction. And he would say that type of thinking fueled his ability to come up with solutions on, on projects that we're working on. So Andre, you mentioned the creative space in this case for Tom McMahon at 5 a.m. in the morning. Where's your creative space? Well, it's interesting. So Willis Hurst, my teacher at Emory, had his creative space at 4 a.m. in his study in this old beat-up chair. Everybody has one. It turned out to me it's 11 o'clock in the shower with Sinatra playing and the speakers in the in the shower. And my wife of 36 years has come to recognize she's living with a crazy man. So she expanded the shower. She enhanced the speaker system, and she actually put a stool in there that's waterproof that I can sit and think, and she just recognizes she's living with a fairly crazy guy. And from about 11 to about 11.40 at night, she just, you know, doesn't bother me because she knows I'm in there. And it's amazing. I think everybody has a place like that. In the literature, those who read about creativity, it's a place where flow occurs. Ideas come in, in rapid sequence. Solutions come up in rapid sequence. It's all different from different people, and you need to kind of study that and pay attention to yourself. There's a lot of self-discovery that's involved in the creative process of, of learning how you can become more creative. It can happen, but that self-discovery is important, whether it's Thoreau walking in Walden Pond, okay, that was his place, or it was Tom in his, in his chair or me in the shower. Some students, when I query them, it's when they're jogging at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, quiet around a pond or a lake that they jog. But it's important, I think, we all pay attention to these signals. These are all internal signals that we oftentimes don't take time to pay attention to. Well, you intentionally use this so you have a problem you're trying to solve and, okay, hey, it's time for me to go take a shower. That's right. That's right. That's right, man. And the other thing that I've learned, which you read in this literature, is that because of the parallel processing that's going on in your brain, you can you could incubate problems uh, at night and leave them there. My great teacher, Willis Hurst, would tell me when we were challenged with some clinical case that I couldn't figure out, he could figure out, he said, I want you to read a little bit about it, but right before you go to bed and then close the book and go to sleep. And you'll be amazed, Andre, come morning that you might have some ideas about this. And there's actually a whole uh, literature around the incubation of problems at night and how the brain is still parallel processing. And I would say everybody try that once in a while. Uh, and you'll see sometimes you'll come up with some revelations and some ideas in the morning that you wonder where they came from. I mean, I think we're learning more and more and more about this uh, unusual structure. We always knew we don't use all of it. I think that was known. But how we can help it be more effective for all of us individually and uniquely uh, for, for all of us is a life's work. It's a life's work of self-discovery. Drawing no question helps. It helps me when I'm in the middle of a challenge, whether it be a problem we're trying to deal with at MIDP or a very complex medical problem or a patient's case, oftentimes I'll go to my, uh, my wife calls it the analog man cave that she's created in the basement in the garage so she can throw me in there and lock the door. And on my drawing board, I'll put a piece of paper and I will begin to create what I call a thought model, which is a series maybe of drawings, of diagrams, or actually forms that allow me to begin to put this in some kind of shape or form that I can start seeing it in a different way. And I call it a thought model and I use it a lot when I'm dealing with complex 
problems, either patient cases. I have some great ones on some patients. I couldn't figure out what the issues were uh, that were both psychiatric, medical, cardiac, until I put those in kind of worldviews on this canvas, on this piece of paper. And all of a sudden, it became very clear what the possible solutions could be. I really recommend that's really a great tool uh, to use it. And you don't have to be a great artist to do this. It could just be simple blocks or ideas, just kind of balloons you could do. But it's the way we come up with ideas, whether it be a new program in MIDP that we're thinking about or lo looking at how we need to view our role in MIDP in the medical center, in the medical school, in the university, looking, those, looking at those as universes or worlds in and of themselves. How do we get them close enough together, but not uh, so much that we lose our identity? And those are some of the kind of ways I use those kinds of drawings to help me think about things. I know one of your real heroes is Leonardo da Vinci. And we are in 2019 celebrating the 500th year anniversary of his death. And, you know, perhaps the the single most creative person who's ever lived. What do you think Leonardo could teach us about innovation in healthcare? Boy, you know, Think about this. So you had a man who, as Sir Kenneth Clark, who was the uh, curator for the, 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 British, the British Art Museum, for years he said the most curious person in the history of the world was Leonardo da Vinci because he studied him. He, he had him in this great book and in the TV documentary Civilization that he did years ago on how art mirrored, helped us understand how man evolved. And so he made the case that da Vinci would walk out of his house in the morning with this parchment pad in his hand, a charcoal pens on his belt, and he would walk out and just see what was occurring. And his brain was wide open to see another way of looking at a house that he passed a hundred times, or a tree he passed, or a plant that was growing or a conversation that was taking place, he would stop and listen and draw the faces. So he's dealing with what we would call in, a large, in, in the modern world, very low-tech <laughs> tools and very low-tech instruments of observation. Couple him to what we have now and take his powers of observation. He honed in very specific ways by ways of training his hearing and his vision to be able to see things clearer and deeper. It would be profound. It would be probably impossible to to even guess what he would do with these tools that he had, that we have. But I would argue what's fascinating, and you would appreciate it too, we continue to learn from him all these hundreds of years forward in time. We, we learn as much going back to learn how he observed the world and how he viewed the world and how he developed his skills of observation and hearing and drawing. Even going back to 1500 or 1465, we're learning tons from Leonardo, and I think uh, in the museum in his town uh, where they've recreated, actually made some of the devices that he drew that no one could think could be made, it blows the minds of the engineers as they actually construct these things that they can and they actually work. It's impossible to say. I, I do think that for us uh, as educators, whether it be educators in middle school or kindergarten or in college or in medical school or in our training programs, we need to be so open and less bound and constrained by the rules of the game, by uh, boundaries of what we can or can't do. We need to encourage people to knock open the doors and to embrace the humanities and the arts because though I was an engineer, I will tell you it's from embracing the arts that I can do more with my engineering brain and my engineering training. 
That's part of what we're about in the MIDP program. That's what you're about in your department as you create your design space here. We're knocking the walls down. We see fewer barriers. And I think it's going to be those schools and those types of thinkers that will be the true innovators for this century, I think. We often hear about going to college and trying to get a, a degree that is, uh, is meaningful. And, and by meaningful, what, what often that's code for saying something that will pay a lot right. okay, when, you, when, you're, when you're done. And, and often the humanities have, uh, have been on the short side of that. And, uh, and the thought might be, oh, hey, wh what are you going to do with that humanities degree? How do you, how do you respond to, to that? Yeah, I, I think, once again, that's a very narrow, focused vision. I think if you look at places like the Wondery or some of the new institutes that are in Europe or even the biodesign labs at Stanford, they're fusion places. They're places that have engineers that are working hand-in-hand -hand with artists, working hand-in-hand -hand with linguists, working hand-in-hand -hand with architectural design people because they recognize it isn't that fusion of all those different skill sets and ideas that the great ideas and the, and the solutions to whether it be healthcare or big societal issues are going to come from. So we need kids that have the humanities that are Im embedded in them. And I think uh, the great... Uh, Educator Wendell Berry, who lives in Kentucky, who wrote, wrote a beautiful essay about the loss of the university a few years ago, and he talked about that's the challenge. He said universities are become so much as product mills, as mills to grind out a product of someone who is ready to be a lawyer or ready to be a doctor, whereas that's not really their main and should be their main function. The main function should be to teach us to think and to be able to see, hear, and, and take in the world and all its beauty and splendor. And at the same time, you'll eventually go off and become a doctor. But if you can hone those other skills that are tied to the humanities, the being able to deal with the awe and respect and the value of, of the world and nature and, and, and the cosmos in general, you're going to be a better doctor. You're going to be a better lawyer. You're going to be a better person in these more professional fields. And so I think Barry is right. And uh, and it's the whole thing around uh, Archibald McLeese at University of Chicago years ago, you know, training. The whole issue around that was the great books. Forget about all this other stuff. You've got to read these books. Plato's Republic. You've got to read, you know, uh, Descartes. You've got to read these books. And then after you do that, your brain is ready now to start engaging in a maybe more specific uh, education. But I'm, I'm a firm believer, and I, I, I think our university here at Vandy, uh, our chancellor understands this uh, in a very deep way. As a matter of fact, you've probably seen there's a big uh, push now around embedding the humanities and arts in what we do in all our uh, schools here and to power them up to give them uh, uh, their, their important role and place in, in, the, in the life of a university. I heard today that IBM had conducted a survey of something like 1,500 CEOs and asked what was the top uh, desired leadership skill for the 21st century, and it was creativity. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and once again, the idea you're born with it, well, you may be born with some of it, but it can be learned. It can be honed. Whatever you have, you can, you know, you can develop. You, you may not be Ted Williams, and it, it may not be that the baseball looks like the size of a basketball sometimes. And he has very special skills. The Lord gave Ted that ability to see the, the baseball sometimes. But you can see it well enough to hit it if you practice enough. And creativity is very much the same way. I think what you have to kind of find out, are you more spatial? 
Are you more auditory music? You just have to kind of find out where is your best place, best area uh, to look at where you can develop your own sense of creativity. Is it going to be in the spatial world with art around drawing, sculpture, uh, painting, molding, or is it going to be more in the auditory, in the in the more visual uh, world, or maybe music? Well, so as we wind down, what would you offer as advice for our audience thinking, hey, I'd like to be more creative. I'd like to, I'd like to use that to enhance my personal life, my professional life. What could I do to enhance my own creativity? We have given, uh, there's a book written by Martin Gelb, who's at the University of Virginia and their business school. And uh, Mr. Gelb, Professor Gelb, uh, spent a few years walking in the footsteps of Leonardo da Vinci and read everything, all the manuscripts, all the codas, all of the pieces. He's not an artist, but he, he studied how da Vinci thought and, and worked. And da Vinci lays it out in these huge texts about how he thought, how he trained himself to read, think, see, hear in ways that enhance those senses and those skills. And Gelb lays this out in the book called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And it's a phenomenal book with a workbook attached to it that I recommend every young person or even us older folks to study and read uh, and go back to because it is a way to begin to create, in, even in the 21st century, fully evolved professional person like we are here, ways to start engaging your creativity, to develop your creativity, to, to kind of resurrect <laughs> your creativity that you've buried in the midst of all the day's efforts and work. Thank you, Andre, for joining us today on Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. And to our audience, please contact me on Twitter at Reed Omery and share your thoughts for what you can do to enhance creativity and how you apply that in your own life. Thank you. 